0: Welcome back to the Acro Files, the podcast hosted by the American College of Real Estate Lawyers. We continue with interviews of iconic real estate investors who have built the companies that have shaped the industry to share reflections on their careers and predictions for the future. Today, I welcome my good friend Sandeep Athrani. Sandeep has had an amazing career, including retail development projects around the world and his most recent run at WeWork, which we look forward to hearing all about. Sandeep, thanks for joining us today.
1: Jay, thank you for having me. It's such an honor and I'm humbled to be here with this distinguished list of members that you told me about. So I don't know how I made it to the crowd.
0: Well, you're well deserving and we'll talk a lot about your your various um, um, gigs over the years, which uh, I've had the pleasure to um, know you a long time back when I think we first met on a um, on a, when you were at Forest City on a PLI panel in New York City run by Dick Goldberg, who was at, was one of the leading guys in the American College of Real Estate Works. So tell us a little bit, before we get into all the real estate issues that we can talk about, tell us a little bit about your early life, the challenges you faced moving from, over from India, and what it was like you know, coming to America when you were a teenager.
1: Jay, I actually uh, was one of those fortunate, I would say, Indians who came from a family of business people, my dad had a construction company and a manufacturing company. My brother was meant to study mechanical engineering and take over the manufacturing company. I was to do civil engineering and take over the construction company. Most of the family had studied in the UK. My father thought it was a good idea. I go to the UK. I was a little rebellious. Uh, the environment wasn't the best in those days you know, for Indians in the UK. It would be hard to imagine that today, considering an Indian is the Prime Minister of of the UK, but it wasn't that way in the seventies, um, and uh, and I chose that I wanted to come to America. So actually, my father was fairly upset uh, that I wanted to come to America. America had the reputation of being, you know, just Woodstock and drugs, <laughs> and uh, and be that as it may, I came to America as a Rotary Exchange student. Quite you know, so I went from this, you know. You know, life that was completely uh, sheltered, if you will, uh, to come to go to public school in America. I lived with three families outside Philadelphia. Uh, and, uh, and I graduated in 12th grade uh, and I, fo- I followed key. I, I became a civil engineer. I uh, got my master's in management. I actually went back to India in 1983 uh, after four years uh, of university. I did my bachelor's and master's in four years. I uh, worked for my dad for a year and, uh, you know, in credit to my father, he said, look, construction is not an easy industry. You know, you should become a professional. You should become a designer. Why don't you go back and do a second master's? And I came to do a second master's in engineering and quite honestly, never went back. So uh, so I found myself uh, working as a you know, civil engineer for a construction management company in 1986. Uh, to 1989, the infrastructure projects and housing projects.
0: And was the expectation that even when you came back to do the second Masters that you would go, come back to India?
1: Yeah, 100%. The expectation was to go back and build the family business. And, you know, hindsight is, I'm not sure, 2020. But, you know, uh, look, India went through a tremendous boom and is continuing to boom. So arguably... Uh, you know, I made the I made a mistake by staying. Uh, although I did, you know, I was fortunate enough to be part of the American dream and and be able to, you know, find, you know, you know, find a a, a profession and, and climb the ladder here. But India, you know, most of our, you know, uh, uh, you know, most of our colleagues or most of the companies that my dad uh, was uh, at par with, you know, over the last uh, forty years have done incredibly well. So. Look, it was fortunate it worked out well here, uh, but uh, you know I often think what would it what would it have been like had I gone back home?
0: Interesting. So you had some roots, I guess, in real estate in the construction business. Um, tell us how you got started. I think your first real estate job was Forest City Ratner.
1: Yeah, the the, the I mean, the way I got started was actually in 1986. It's a small story, but it's a fun story. You know, I'm an engineer, you know, designing, you know, like I said, wastewater treatment plants and housing projects, the big dig in Boston. Uh, And uh, I I bought a car since I just graduated, a used Nissan Sentra for $3,500. And I wanted to buy an apartment uh, in Washington, D.C., actually in Alexandria, Virginia. And I bought this apartment. It was like 55,000 bucks. And there were FHA loans in those days. You can get 95% mortgages, uh, and so you had put on $2,750. I sold a car, you know, bought a much cheaper car for $500. Uh, I put the money into buying this apartment. I borrowed some money on my credit card at 18%, uh, to pay for closing costs. I remember also clearly, um, and, uh, so I probably had $3,000 in the apartment, 500 bucks in the new car. And about a year, 18 months later, I sell it for 77,000 bucks. I make $20,000. Here I've got two master's degrees making25,000 a year and I said, oh my God, it made twenty thousand dollars like you know, you know in a short period of time. I bought a house, sold a house in Woodbridge, Virginia, made ten thousand dollars. and I literally said, this real estate stuff is really good. And so I applied for a job, actually looking for looking for work in the real estate industry, not realizing where I wanted to go, except for there was a pivot in my mind that real estate, you know, had an opportunity to make money compared to just being an engineer, uh, you know, and this guy out of Staten Island hired me to design shopping centers and go through night meetings. And he had a small company in those days in 1989, but in the link, even at the same, and there was a small company with the same size as Kimco in those days, right? So they were all, people forget. You know, they were two, $300 million companies. They were not big companies, okay? Um, and and I, I, I and I worked with him as an engineer uh, and, and and he gave me the opportunity to climb and pivot. Uh, and uh, I soon took over capital markets for him in 1991. It was a fantastic time to learn because it was a recession. Uh, you know, blanks were climbing down, restructuring our debt. Uh, so I was learning uh, as I was... Um, as i was working so uh, i learned actually the industry in in this sort of downturn uh, and i was able to you know negotiate myself uh, out of this uh, you know weave myself out of the uh, the troubles of the 1990s and and then, and then you're right in 1994 uh, i was asked by bruce ratner if i wanted to come and work uh, with him uh, to build to start a shopping center group uh, to build shopping centers in the boroughs of new york city
0: So, wow, so that's a very interesting path forward, right? So you've gotten to work for Bruce and for Roth, some, you know, Steve Roth, some very interesting people. Tell tell us how they mentored you and how they sort of shaped your ability to um, invest and and, uh, analyze transactions.
1: Very different, right? I mean, I've had... You know, think about. I mean, I worked for Bruce Ratner, then Steve Roth, and it took over GGP. But again, again, it was under the tutelage of Bruce Flat, who, you know, and and, you know, and 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 Blackstone was a very big investor of of GGP. So I've had obviously, you know, John Gray uh, and his group, and John Schreiber, actually, you know, who's really the legend on the real estate side. Uh, you know, of of the Blackstone group, he actually started Blackstone's real estate group, um, and so. Each one was different, you know, uh, Bruce Ratner was very, all, oh, by the way, incredibly, incredibly brilliant, I might add. I mean, I've had the fortune of working for mentors who are very smart uh, and, and you know, Bruce Ratner obviously wanted to create, I mean, his whole, his whole thesis, okay, was to make the boroughs of New York City a better place, okay. So he wasn't chasing to be a developer, okay? Um, Even though his cousins at Forest City were developers and owners of real estate, okay? You know, he was the commissioner of consumer affairs um, under the Koch administration, uh, and he got into business really to clean up uh, downtown Brooklyn. You know, jobs were being lost to Jersey City, you know, back office jobs. And he wanted to keep back office jobs in New York City, And therefore, MetroTech was given birth, okay, to be able to keep those. And you know, Chase was one of the first, you know, institutions to sign the back office in MetroTech. So he, if you look at his, you know, his beginnings, his beginning wasn't, I'm going to go make a lot of money. I'm going to be this prolific developer. It was really to make New York City a better place. So much more from a, I wouldn't say philanthropic way, but I would say more conscious to make New York better, okay? And then that was his view. And so when I was asked to come in and join and start, you know, building shopping centers in the boroughs of New York City, I'll never forget, you know, um, one of the first meetings we went to was with, uh, I mean, the older people, you know, will know the name, but the younger people won't. But, you know, the commission, the, the, the borough president, of Queens was a lady by the name of Claire Schulman, okay, uh, and 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 you know Claire was this if you you know met her or seen her was this very elderly stately stately woman, uh, and, and 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 Bruce went to a meeting and said, look, we want to go build the supermarket in Queens, okay, on Northern Boulevard, and here's why we want to do it, and he took with him you know pieces of meat, okay, uh, and he put them on this conference table and said, this is what you get, you're giving your constituents at this price. And if I go to Costco, this is what you can buy it for. So by you depriving, you know, denying us to build these, you know, supermarkets, you're you're actually denying your constituents, okay, from buying affordable food. So his whole take was about how can I make this place better? It wasn't, you know, like I said, he his his actions were very different. And 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 I say so learned you know, all about you know giving from him. Um, you know, and, and doing thing. Actually, he taught me, about in the first things about you know, do the right thing. You know, always do the right thing, uh, and it it'll pay off in the long term. And we enjoyed ourselves from 1994 to 2002. You know, we built 15, 16 shopping centers, and I loved. You know, if you ask me, my 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 part of my career that I loved was. I, you know, I was buying my own properties, going through the development process and, uh, and, and building them. And as I like to tell people, I was creating my own mess. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But I was, you know, but it was mine, right. There was no one else's. And so we, we had a really good run for eight years and, and, and and the most fascinating, the two fascinating things under Bruce Ratner to me, one was, you know, in 19, I, I'm going to make this up, uh, 97, 98, uh, Steve Ross, R-O-S-S, uh, and Jeff Blau offered me to come and run a shopping center business under the related brand. And I don't know what I was making, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars with Bruce. And Steve, R-O-S-S, says, I'll pay you a million dollars. million dollars? you got to be kidding me. And they said, no, 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 I want you to come work with me. Says so in on one condition. I got to go tell Bruce I'm going to come work for you, and Bruce and Steve were good pals. And he calls him up and he says, "Steve, you just cost me eight hundred thousand dollars more, and I never went to work for Steve Ross, but I still, to date, give Steve Ross a lot of credit for creating wealth for me. If nothing else, um, you know." And and it was an interesting aspect that you don't even know what your value is because you're you're doing work like you know you don't in those days it was very different I don't think people thought about value the way they think about value themselves today it was about work hard do the right thing pivot you know and and things will things will work out you know uh, so that was the first thing I I, I learned was, was about your value right. The second thing I also learned under Bruce was, you know, and, and he'll tell you this today, that, you know, he he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm not sure you can really lead a big group. You, you're doing a great job of what you're doing, but you want to be the number two in my company. And I'm not sure you could do that. And I said, why? Like, what would prevent me from doing that? It was a fascinating con- conversation. He said, I have no idea. Maybe you should. You know, uh, go try to figure it out. You know, and you know, I guess today they, you know, we, we, we they were much more, much more polite, right? So we call them, uh, I don't know, uh, occupational therapists, I guess, or something like that. In those days, it was called a shrink. Okay, <laughs> you know, and, and 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 I didn't get offended. That that was the key. Okay, so I actually went to a professional, and I and I tried to figure out why could I not be a leader, right? And I'm not sure it helped or hurt. Uh, but the only lesson I have, you know, to give to people is when people say something to you, they have good intentions at heart. They don't have bad intentions, right? So it could have gone one or two ways. I could have taken it badly and had bad intentions or taken it positively and had good intentions. And since I only had good intentions and I knew Bruce, I did the right. So those two things taught me some things. When people give you advice, it may be hard and tough love, but they have good intention. And two, you know, don't ever think what your value is. Your value will find you. So I learned two very valuable lessons besides, of course, the fundamentals of doing the right thing. So, and then, you know, date, Bruce and I, you know, we we must converse once a month, meet often enough, and we have this really special relationship, you know? And then Steve Roth was very different. Steve Roth was, uh, you know, smarter than most human beings I know. Um, you know, he, he, he taught you, you know, one of the things he taught you, uh, which, uh, you know, also comes from, you know, you know bless, his, bless his soul from Sam Zell, you know, uh, was, was uh, you know, in any deal, right? We always underwrite how much money we can make. Okay. We never underwrite that if we lose money, how much of an impact will it have on us? Okay. Almost no one ever does that. Right. And Steve and Sam would always talk about, okay, Hey, can you survive this if you lose money in this transaction? Right. And so with Steve, I always learned is, you know, I took over a business of his, the shopping center business, which had sort of, you know, had dilapidated, had great real estate, but had dilapidated over time because he'd become a very as you mentioned, you interviewed Mike Facetelli and Mike joined Steve in 1994. And Mike, you know, changed Bornado from being a shopping center company to being a predominantly office company, and did a beyond spectacular job in in in, in reshaping the company. But it had this old business, okay, that needed attention, and my job was to take this old business and turn it around. And uh, and the most fascinating part. Well, Steve always had a great balance sheet, so we never had to worry about money, okay? And he always looked to see, you know, where the pitfalls stood. Not because he was trying to, you know, come in the way of a transaction, but he wanted to make sure that you could address every issue that came up and you were prepared. And, you know, again, what today's youngsters, at least, you know, I've now been CEO a few times myself, don't do <laughs> was what we did, we would sit and rehearse for hours before going to meet Steve. Okay. What's the questions he can ask? What can you do? You know, what am I missing? You know, and literally like the night before was like this whole rehearsal. We won't just show up there cold Turkey and he would come there and literally we would like answer his questions. And he always found a way to find something that you hadn't addressed, which was again, not a bad thing. He wasn't trying to poke a hole. He was trying to make sure that you had thought of everything. And it was, it was a classic thing that people, you know, don't think of. And I was always walk away amazed and say, shit, I didn't nail that, you know, but it taught me a lot. Okay. And, 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 and we, we, we and once you built his trust, you know, he was very, very giving, he, you know, he allowed me to do a lot of things. We built his superb business under his guidance and I'm forever grateful. And, uh, and, I, and I'll give you a little joke. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, I think of him daily and I used to call him Papa, you know, and uh, and when I became CEO of GGP, I called him up. I said, I have an earnings call. What should I do? He says, wear a white shirt. <laughs> Guess what, Jay, I'm wearing a white shirt for you.
0: Perfect. So I, your story is great. I, 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 I worked with Steve and Mitchell Whole Foods deal in Arlington that they did in Crystal City. And just what you say, I remember Steve, when he came in and focused on things which wasn't every day he was letting Mitchell run it right but I remember him saying to us I need to preserve optionality that was his word on that deal because the because the property hadn't been rezoned at that point they had control of it but there was a lot of issues out there and hopefuls was going to tie up Renato in that deal and he said I have to have optionality to get out of the deal if if we can't get it done in X months or years, year. So yeah, it's a great lesson and it's exactly right for, for just a brilliant guy. But okay, so it's, it's interesting also what you say that your um, starting there with them was sort of, it sounds like part of the beginning of your turnaround run, right? Because from there to GGP to WeWork, um, because people who are old enough like you or me know that Bernado's roots were in shopping centers in New Jersey and Alexander's and all that stuff Steve had. So you then, you then move into a, a different situation, right? That's got plenty of challenges in Chicago, with all of the stuff that GGP had been through for those couple of years, and you turned it around and made it a really successful company. What was the secret there?
1: You know, you know, one of the few things I would say that GGP was uh, was uh, was an interesting place, right? Uh, uh, and, and what you had to figure out was, you know. Uh, it was the business trouble or was the balance sheet trouble, uh, you know, uh, or, uh, or does it sit under the 80-20 rule? And it became pretty obvious to me when I looked at the portfolio that, quite honestly, the acquisition that got them into trouble, which was buying the Rouse Company, was actually also the savior of the company because the assets the Rouse Company had, were the, were, the, were, the, were, were, were the better assets. The original GGP assets were actually the weaker assets. So ironically, the thing that got them into trouble actually also got us out of trouble, okay? Uh, you know, which is so what put us into trouble was a good business, the bad balance sheet. Uh, and, and what got us out of trouble was to be able to weed out the lower quality assets, focus on the good business and correct the balance sheet. Right. So, so effectively what I learned was that, you know, there, there are generally three things that, that need to be corrected. One is fundamentally on the real estate, right. You know, you need to have good real estate, right. You always talk about, your know, location, 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 and people think it's a, uh, you know, it's a passe word, but no, it actually is absolutely correct. Right. Uh, and over and over again, uh, it's location, location, location. And so one, one had to study the portfolio to see the quality of the real estate. And it was very obvious early in the game that 80% of the real estate was quite good and 20% was not so good, okay? But again, that's not so far. An 80-20 rule, you know, it's not like it's, you know, like, like they're the only people. I can almost look at almost anyone's portfolio today and and will tell you it has an 80-20 rule, right? Whether, uh, and, and so so effectively you know, the question was, okay, how do you put the resources and what do you do and how do you create this high quality asset base, right? And when you look at 80% of the assets and you look at the top three to 400 malls in the country, you know, you control 30, 40% of the portfolio, which is a very dominant place to be. So I felt good about the portfolio. I had to figure out what to do with the low quality assets. The second thing I looked at was the organization structure. And nothing wrong with it by the way i can go back to every owner that i work for the culture of the organization is a culture as spelt out by the owner and they never think about culture because they are the entrepreneur right so bruce has his, his culture that's how his company is built steve has his culture that's how his company built and so did the bucks pumps right they, they it was a family-run business and they had a certain culture and so when you bring a professional in you, ha- you get an opportunity to change the culture or modify the culture or mold the culture or accentuate the best qualities of a culture, right? So I'm not saying any one of those, but a combination of all of those. And so again, and exactly correct. I mean, you know, the buckswan family was an amazing family. John is an amazing human being. Uh, and, and because he's such an amazing human being, they built a paternalistic culture, right? So, it's like, I wanna be your father. Like, so it was, a, it was a family, right? So essentially, you know, you know, I had the opportunity to basically make it more, you know, to make it more structured. And, and so th- what I'm trying to get at is effectively, you're able to streamline the organization, which is much easier to do when a professional comes in, okay? And so the question was how much can we streamline the organization? And the third aspect here is okay, how do you make it a much more efficient operating structure? Right. So essentially, you know, and, and the last point we had to worry about was, you know, we had to correct the balance sheet, right? We had to restructure the balance sheet. Now I will say, so we, we were able to do all the above, right? So we created, you know, we spun out a company called we called it Rouse again, where we took the lower-quality assets and started a separate public company. So that was a very good move, and then, of course, it was followed by all our peers who did virtually the same thing. <laughs> the second is, you know, we streamlined the company. We had about 4,000 employees, and we ended up with 1,800 employees, and we saved a substantial amount of dollars by streamlining the company. And we we made the company more efficient from an operating perspective by making our operating costs come down substantially so we did all the factors now to basically say okay we've got a good portfolio with the right overhead structure with the right operating model right and the last thing we need to do is work on the work on the balance sheet and 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 look i got to give credit to al albeit from a uh, from a pr perspective or from the news media perspective it was the mall was dying however from performance perspective Revenues were going up, sales productivity was going up, occupancy was going up. So there was a mismatch between the two, but the fundamentals were strong, and there was good wind behind our back. And look, I can't take credit for the wind behind our back. We were coming out of a great recession, so I take a little bit of luck, um, you know, that that came with it, and we were able to take that and and you know formulate that into restructuring the debt and laddering maturities over a ten-year period, so no one year would get us into trouble um and so uh and, and this and the and the last thing, those are the four things from a tactical perspective was I was a big believer of culture you know and and in the in the words of Peter Drucker, you know, I believe that you know you know the culture eats strategy for breakfast, and I hired you know a guru of uh, uh, that I thought of culture by the name of Larry sen uh who who wrote a book you know uh uh, you, know, you know, about, about culture. And uh, and we were able to come up with a mission, vision statement, core values. And essentially what we were able to do was to live our core values. And people say, why talk about core values? I said, you don't understand that 90% of the employee base doesn't understand the numbers. They don't know what EBITDA is. They don't know what NOI is, okay? They want to make sure they're working in a company that has good values, Okay. And, and they relate to do the right thing, come together, you know, um, you know, they, they relate to the core values and we were able to, you know, you know, uh, to build, you know, build co- good core values. And, and if anyone ever asked me what I would, you know, want to have left behind at GTP, I w- I would say a culture.
0: Great. Great. Yeah. So, no question. Um, everything we saw in Chicago, you know, G- GGP had great bones at the Bucks Bounds that built a great company, as you said. and you know bad timing, some bad financial decisions, and they were where they were. Um, so there that you you did a great job, GGP rolls up to Brookfield, um, and you pivot yet again to take on another, I would say, safely say a challenging um, um, assignment at WeWork. Um, and are there are there parallels there or is it just such a, was it a really different situation when you moved over there?
1: Look, WeWork is an amazing company. Uh, I will say, I think co-working in Flex is definitely the future. It's, it's, it's what e-commerce was to retail, Flex is to office. I do believe it'll become 10, 20% of the market. And people don't really appreciate when e-commerce was taking off there were enough successes and enough failures right uh and and in hindsight you know e-commerce is definitely part of our fabric today so 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 the way i look at it, you know we work had a lot of similarities to to a turnaround it had growing revenue growing demand so it didn't have the headwinds that the more business did okay Uh, It had the same three mistakes. It grew very fast, so it had bad real estate. It grew very fast, so it had excessive overhead. It grew very fast, and it had a broken operating structure. Everything was a fault of growth, okay, of fast growth. And again, it happens to all, you know, growing company. This is nothing... This is not WeWork oriented or targeted WeWork. It's, you know, it, it applies to many companies, okay, growth companies. So we were able to close 250 locations, which is about 20% of the portfolio. We restructured 500 leases. We streamlined the organization. So we saved about $1.6 billion in SGNA. and and we corrected the operating structure. And doing all the above, okay, we were able to save about $2.5 billion on a recurring basis. So the, there's a lot of parallels. So there was, it, was, it was shockingly how parallel it was. The thing that made it really hard was a pandemic. <laughs> you know, the pandemic set in. Uh, and if the pandemic did not set in, I can tell you this company would have been profitable in, 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 the, in, the, in the fourth quarter of 2020 because all we are trying to do today is get to the same revenue number we had in Q1 of 2020, because we've corrected the cost structure to that point. So the parallels were exactly the same. I instilled you know, you know, culture, I corrected the balance sheet. Uh, so really, quite ironically, I would say that GGP and WeWork uh, were exactly the same solves, okay, uh, with one difference. One had headwinds, other one had tailwinds, and unfortunately, the one that had tailwinds, which is we were, okay, had to face a pandemic. Okay,
0: so let's talk a little about what you you just briefly reference about the future of co working and flex space, word that is, in the office sector. Um, I'm sure you read last week. I think, so I think it was a CEO of JLL predicted that the the the, the um, corrections in the office sector are behind us, which I Found a little surprising to read um, since to me it seems like we've got a ways to go um, on the overall office sector but why don't you you're you're now you know although some people would say we work as a hotel business or, or more maybe closer to a retail business than an office business but but you've really pivoted from being the retail expert to now being in the office sector much more the last several years so wh- where do you think we are on, on getting people back to the office, and, and what does it mean for the future of office buildings in the urban core?
1: Well, let me let me put it this way: Today's Wall Street Journal had a very interesting article about tech companies, bringing companies, back to work. Right? I, I think we people, you know, we live in America, and in America, we have a different perspective. But if you look at Southeast Asia, Europe, uh, India, China. People are back to work three, four days a week, if not five days a week. Uh, traffic is back to pre-pandemic levels. We work's occupancies are in the 80s and 90%, and we work profitable in every country but America, fundamentally. Okay. America has been a little slow to coming back so we to to, to to the office, but that is also changing rapidly. And it's interesting now, people don't talk about hybrid work as three days. They talk about three days, four days. And actually some places are talking about five days back to work. So I think this back to work is going to happen and accelerate as the year goes on. I think people have realized people need to come together to collaborate, innovate, produce. So I think there will be this come back to work. I think the amount of space needed okay, per person will go down. Okay, So there is, there is a surplus amount of space. And I think the configuration on how the spaces are organized will change to foster collaboration. Okay. So, so saying that to say, you know, is the sector overbuilt? You could say yes. Or alternatively, you could say like in the mall business, okay, the A malls are going to be great. And the C and the D malls are not going to be so great. Okay. So then an oversupply that'll hurt the the, the, the assets that are, that are, uh, you know, that are uh, obsolete, poorly located. Uh, and, 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 and so, you, you're seeing that, right? So the assets that are, you know, well-amenitized, well-located, prime locations, okay, are doing very well, okay? Uh, and, the loca- and the assets that are obsolete, uh, poorly located, uh, or the center of gravity is moved away are not doing very well. Uh, so I think there's going to be, you know, I don't think, I think there's, a, you, know, you, know, you know, there's a haves and a have-nots. So, you know, you can decide how much overbuilt we are. But the one thing I will say is that it's going to take a lot of capital, even in the best assets, okay, to get the best assets ready to suit the needs of the next, you know, cohort of workers, okay. Uh, And so you will see a lot of shuffling, you know, which the old business was, you do a 10-year lease, and then guess what, 10 years comes by, they renew for another 10 years, okay, without much you know, of an evolution. Right. And, and, and that format, okay. Is what kept everything going quite well because the renewal rates are very high. I think the renewal rates, okay. For the same space, it may be they may stay in the same building, but they'll shrink. Okay. Or they'll move to a different location. Um, But I think the, the renewals as is, where is will come down. Okay which will have an impact to capital needs to get the best buildings even to a position uh, of high occupancy. So there is a level of, I think this is an industry that has not been disrupted. And there seems to be, you know, a movement towards a disruption, whether it is the way business is done, you know, between the landlord and the tenant uh, or, or, because of flex coming and taking a bigger percentage of the deal. But don't forget, like if you're in Southeast Asia, leases are five years. They're not 10 year leases, right? So we're just behind the eight ball on what the world is already doing. So people seem to think here, then, oh my God, this is huge evolution. China leases are three years, Asia leases are five years. So it's not like uh, it's anything foreign. They just adjusted the model to make it work. And I so what I mean by disruption, it's, we are experiencing what everyone else has experienced already. Like in Poland, you know, co-working is 10% of the market. In the UK, it's 7 or 8% of the market. In the US, it's 2% of the market. So we're just playing catch up, okay, which is going to have an impact, okay, uh, you know, uh, to, 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 the, to the sector here. But I do, again, believe that great assets are going to be fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've thought particularly in the last year that if you were a small to medium sized tenant, a five to 10,000 foot tenant, right, and you were up for renewal, and you don't know what your return to office, you know, projection really is, wouldn't you be better off going to a WeWork enterprise, taking a floor or half of a floor there and only have to commit for a year or two and get maximum flexibility in this flex space world that, that the co-working companies all built?
1: But that seems to be the way, right? Because, you know, over the last six quarters, at least WeWork has taken, you know, in most cities, 20% market share and they control 1% of the space. So you can see that shift occurring. Uh, and, and that's why I said, like, you know, uh, it, it's, just, it's just a matter of time uh, before that shift occurs. But that shift is occurring here, but it's nothing new in other parts of the world.
0: Right, right. So look, you, you've, over the years, you've obviously interacted with lots and lots of professionals, both lawyers and brokers and others. And, um, um, you know, this audience initially will be a high percentage of sophisticated real estate lawyers. Uh, I'm sure they'd be interested to hear what your advice is to your observations on, on, on how lawyers um, do a better job.
1: <laughs> you know, that's a very unfair question. Okay, uh, it's a very unfair question. Uh, I I would say two things. I'm you know I'm highly critical here, so this may I have to watch what I say. It's one okay. is, uh, you know, one is I will say that the lawyers that actually have a business mind, okay, uh, are special, are very special, okay, uh, because then they actually put their you know shoes into uh, if they, if, you know, they they feed into the other person's shoes, right? So, so they're very, very special. And and I always remember one of my my first lawyers at Forest City that I that I loved. Okay, uh, and unfortunately, I lost touch with him. Was he used to be in a company called Battle Fowler? I don't think Battle Fowler even exists today. Uh, uh, a guy called Rob Robert Desantis. He was, you know, just uh, he was a brilliant lawyer. Okay, and uh, and he knew how to negotiate. He was the business guy, and he chipped away the other side beautifully. He just knew how to chip away, and 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 those that are more transactional, okay, um, they it, it's a it's a difference, okay, to me, okay, and and the, and that's one point. So one who's like, you know if you are business minded, you know to think. I think it's a lot of investment to understand the business to really get into it that that really helps the client, okay? I, I would say the second thing is today, you know, take this the right way. You know, it's a very fee-driven business, okay? And I remember early in our game, we would negotiate a flat fee, you know, on a transaction. Uh, and uh, not for any reason. It's just, you know, it's just what we did. Today, you know, if a deal has to closed at midnight, that changes to 11.59, right? And there are lots of lawyers and paralegals running around, okay, doing the research. So that ability, you know, you know, like what Robert did, okay, there are very few Roberts, okay, you know, and even if he had his paralegals, he understood, you know, every aspect of it, you know, and was able to draft to close a deal. He was driven to close he wasn't driven to drag it out to the and I haven't seen a deal okay in the last fifteen years that hasn't gone to the last minute yeah well, so i okay. I think that we all need to be it needs to be you know I think we're a team right we it means it needs to be feeling comfortable we should all feel good about it when we end a transaction and uh the the ease of closing a transaction today, okay, has gone away. It's not easy. Uh, and it happens because there are deadlines, okay? And and I think, you know, and remember, it's like I want to rely on counsel to ease my, ease my ability, okay, to take the stress away from me, to know that once the business deal is made, I can get this thing done. I don't have to you know, you know, I don't have to stress about it. And that it seems to be, there's a, you know, that, that stress is not, is, is gotten more, not less over time. And I can't tell you why, you know, you know, like I know, like, I again, I don't mean to quote Lloyd, but like, you know, I used Joe Schenker for a long time and Sullivan Cromwell. Joe took away all my stress. I never had stress. Yep. You know, Look, he, he took first, care of me.
0: And your first point about the, the understanding action of the business is exactly why the college is hosting these discussions with people like you and mike and others because we think that our audience will benefit and become much better counsel if they get into the weeds here and really understand how our clients and leading business people think so you're spot on so um uh, there's lots of other things we could talk about let me ask you just a couple of last questions Um, you know, everybody's wondering about real estate. And as somebody interviewed said, you know, you can't believe everything you read on CNBC because it's just focused on the office sector. And there's lots of, you know, good things going on out there. And, and and every time we've had one of these cycles, what we've seen is the most creative and innovative and thoughtful companies and leaders have, have done well. So if somebody gave you a hundred million dollars, a family, you know, office now gave you a hundred million dollars and said, I want you to invest in real estate. What would your advice be? What would you do?
1: Look, I, 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 am a big believer of the following. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, look, I, I, I switched now to go to the buy side for a reason. Right. Uh, one was I really re- remember enjoying, as I told you, my '94 to 2002 experience, where I was buying my own uh, assets and doing my own thing. Uh, and so I, I wanted to be back on the buy side where I could buy uh, you know things that I understood and and what I want to make sure is that fundamentally you're buying good businesses with broken balance sheets. Uh, I think to buy a broken business with a broken balance sheet, which is what you know I've tried to do now three times and touch what I mean marginally successful. Uh, is is, is, a, is not where I would go, uh, you know, today. And I do think that even in the best asset classes, and I think residential is the best asset class uh, today, you are going to find broken balance sheets. Uh, you're going to find, uh, you know, where people bought things at a four cap, with floating rate debt, uh, expecting, you know, pricing to go up and the increase in interest rates got them off guard. Going honestly, and there's going to be pressure, so it doesn't have to be a broken business with a broken balance sheet. You know, it can be a good business with a broken balance sheet, and so I think one there's no rush uh, to make an investment. I do think there's time on your side, uh, and and uh, and and I think there's going to be enough distress from a debt perspective. Uh, You know, I do believe that the is going to have to do an RTC too. Uh, okay. Uh, that's just, I don't see any other way, uh, to, you know, to, 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 you know, to help this one and a half trillion trillion of commercial mortgages that are coming due. Um, you know, you can decide what portion of it is underwater or not underwater, but the world would sit back and say a large percentage, even if the assets are good, it's just a question of the, the balance sheet being bad. Uh, so I do think that you can be patient. Uh, I think the government's going to have to do an RTC too. Uh, and I think, you know, again, you know, not to, uh, you know, not to, uh, hail the, uh, you know, uh, you know, and again, like I said, rest his rest is soul in peace, you know, uh, but Sam got his name as a grave dancer, you know, uh, from taking benefit of the RTC. So, my view is uh that uh there will be a I can't say similar, but there will be a playbook uh whereby, you know, patience and capital will will help uh create real wealth uh in the in this next decade. Okay, yeah,
0: great. So let's end with what's the best real estate investment advice you ever got?
1: Uh, as I said before, just remember, and uh, I repeat it, okay, uh, was that, uh, again, it was from Sam Zell who said, uh, you know, just remember, it's easy to write an IRR calculation how much money you're going to make. Just remember, Sandeep, you know, uh, do the math that if you lose that money, okay, can you survive? And if you can, make the investment.
0: Got it. Great. Sandeep, this has really been a wonderful conversation. I, I know that the people, that listen to this will greatly benefit by the insights on your amazing career and all the places you've been. So thank you so much for spending time with us today.